Hey, so welcome to the Substack podcast where we interview great writers uh, who have gone independent about how they do what they do. Uh, today, Nathan, who do we have on the show? We have Walter Hickey, who formerly was at 538, but then just recently left and started a new newsletter called Numlock. Uh, that's like basically a way to understand the world through interesting numbers that he comes up with every single day. And uh, in a really short period of time, he gained over 20,000 readers. And we actually talked to him on the day that he launched paid subscriptions, which is an exciting milestone. So hold on. Walt has a newsletter with 20,000 subscribers that he's built up. And he's decided to go paid, start his own like independent media empire. He's launching paid subscriptions. He's going out to all of his subscribers and like putting himself out there, asking him to pay. And you talk to him like hours after he's just done this. Yeah, I How's think it, like how, three hours or no, maybe four. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. How's it going? Is he like, is he excited? What's the, what's that like? I mean, I can't spoil it. You got to listen. Oh, yeah. So what's Walt's background? What was he doing before he launched Numlock? Yeah. So um, immediately before he was at 538, which is the kind of famous data journalism publication uh, owned by ESPN under Nate Silver, who's the guy who tells you who's going to win the election every time. Um, <laughs> and and before that, he was at Business Insider. And before that, he was an applied math major, um, which I thought was an interesting start to a journalism career. Uh, so yeah, he's a really talented guy, extremely smart. Sounds cool. Should we dive into it? Let's dive in. Walter Hickey, how's it going? I'm really good. Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, it's an exciting day. Today's today's a big day for you and Substack uh, together. What um, we we should tell people what happened today. Yeah, so um, I woke up after my Canada Day hangover and uh, found that we uh, uh, like I launched the subscriptions uh, for uh, Numlock News. Yeah. I had just joined. Yeah, I had come over to Substack last week, and the idea was we wanted to you know start the rollout of the paid subscription package. And today was the first day, the real big first push. And uh, yeah, it, it feels really really good. That's awesome. I was gonna ask, like, yeah, how are you, how are you feeling about it so far? I feel great. I mean, the thing is, I like one reason that I wanted to really do either subscription model is like, I think generally speaking, one thing that folks like we can kind of get at the bigger ideas later. But I think that like when people are paying for the content that they consume, that's a, a closer relationship that they have with the people who make it. That's a better way of kind of ensuring that you are the customer, right? I think a lot of what we see when it comes to the web these days is that if you look at who's really the customer for a lot of different, you know, news sites or, or social media sites, it's it's advertisers. And I think that one really robust thing about making your own audience and and building out your own audience is that it's um, they will like they're they come number one, like it's the subscribers first kind of thing. Totally. And I think that that's an important thing for media in general. Yeah. I think, yeah, we'll definitely, we should definitely get into that. I want to start though. Yeah. I'm curious, like when you were in college, you majored in applied math and yeah. you wrote for the newspaper in school, right? I did. Yes. Was that there is a lot the, of overlap like, <laughs> between those two worlds? And like, how did, how did you get into writing from math or how did you get into math from writing? Like where'd the direction go? Yeah. 
Well, I started off like the the reason that I did both of those things was because they there wasn't very much overlap. I, I like if you do too much math, then you kind of start getting inside your own head, and you don't really have that like outlet for writing and that kind of stuff. And if you do like journalism, a lot of times there are journalists who don't ever have to learn Excel or how to do that kind of stuff. And I think that uh, it initially started off as two very separate hobbies, and gradually over time, I saw that the intersection was an extremely exciting space. I think in general, like the the way that like i think that math has a little bit more in common with writing than people necessarily suspect and i think it actually has a lot more in common with writing than say, say like you know like chemistry or, or physics or a lot of the other fields that it's kind of lumped in when it comes to stem i think that both of them are kind of predicated on on uh, making arguments that follow from one another. The idea is that whether you're doing a, a math proof or whether you're like trying to calculate an equation or whether you're making an argument of a piece or whether you're like talking about how you discovered something, I think that that uh, conveying of like new information and how you arrive there and having kind of the, you need to have the one follows another, follows another, follows another. I think that that is actually like a skill that both people don't realize that the other field has. <laughs> totally. And so like, yeah, when it kind of came to, like, in college, like, I'll give you a good example. The first time that I really wanted to combine math and uh, storytelling was when I was a my junior summer internship, which was with this group, Open Secrets, the Center for Responsive Politics. They're really a wonderful place. They track all the money in politics in Washington. Right. And so they, like, I was an intern for them, and I had the opportunity to essentially, you know, how do you use numbers and data to tell a story? And then when I got back on campus senior year, I got to, like, really have fun in that space. Like, my favorite thing that I did was um, I FOIA'd every single parking ticket on campus and then used data to figure out where it was best to park illegally. The- <laughs> uh, and we printed that. Yeah, it was great. Did the local, I mean, we framed like, it as- campus police just love you after that, or what? Oh, I mean, like, it was... I mean, the campus police was different than parking services, and, and essentially it was like picking a fight with Sauron if you're on a college campus and trying to fight parking services, right. if you know what I mean. So, right. Oh, I personally um, know a lot about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a friend who found the best way around it, which was Virginia allows vanity license plates. And he figured out that if you just change your vanity license plate every six months, you don't have to pay the campus parking tickets. So, like, uh, I mean, re- realistically, it was just kind of a fun opportunity to use data to tell a story that was really serving the human interest. And, and I mean, we were able to use visualization techniques and all that. And then I kind of realized, well, I'd like to do this perhaps full-time, and there were really, like, there were brilliant folks like Nate Silver really making a case for that um, in the press, and I came in, I, like, left, I graduated college in 2012, Uh, I worked for Business Insider under Joe Weisenthal for a while, and we kind of figured out how do you write about, like, consumer and reader-oriented data stuff, and that was kind of how I broke in. That was, I guess, 2012, I mean, I don't know, do you think I'm right in saying that that's kind of roughly when data journalism started to become more mainstream? Does that... Does that sound that, right that to you? Jives. So, like, if you think about, like, let's talk about, like, data journalism, I think. Um, so, you can talk about, like, where it was in sports. Like, you can talk about Moneyball, and that moment was kind of earlier on, but it really hit mainstream in the 2012 years. Like, I think that's when maybe Moneyball actually even came out, the film. But, like, when you look at how, like, like ESPN investing in kind of putting stats forward and making acquisitions for that. And, but more importantly, if you look at, like, a lot of people associate data journalism now with politics because... Right. It's a compelling kind of way of, of approaching politics. And that was the year that Nate and Micah were at the Times. And um, <clears throat> and that was the year that they essentially, like, that was their big break in a lot of ways, even though that they had done very well in 2008, having a platform like the New York Times to write about their stuff was clearly huge. And so I think that that's how it kind of got on a, people, a lot of people's lips. And then 2013 was when 538 went 
from the times to espn and that's when i got hired on there as their culture guy gotcha gotcha so but i want to i want to go back still again to to college a little bit because there's a question i wanted to ask which is like when did you like how did you find your first audience was it all did you ever get the feeling that like there were a lot of people coming to read something because you wrote it at the in that early formative phase like what kind of got you hooked on writing like for people <laughs> yeah i would say that it absolutely has to do with um like I mean, you write so that you can get read, and I felt like the thing that the student newspaper was really nice with was that you knew exactly who your audience was. Right. You knew exactly the sphere of, it might not be, like, it was probably only a couple thousand people, but it was a valuable resource for those thousand people. And I think that kind of seeing the immediate, like, oh, somebody read a story that I did, or they liked a story that I did, or, like, if we had done videos or anything like that, like, like people, like, seeing people enjoy it, like it, participate in it. Um, it was nice. Like, I mean, one story that I really like a, a very servicey one that I did was essentially Hurricane Irene mm-hmm. hit Virginia uh, beginning of my senior year and everybody, they, they ordered an evacuation of campus and I weathered out the storm with a few friends uh, on an off campus house. And then like the morning after the storm, I went around campus with a camera and like a lot of it was like, hey, can you swing by my house and see what's up with my tree and what and like that kind of like, oh, that you can make a demonstrable impact in people's lives. You don't have to have uh, an enormous audience, but if you know exactly who you can appeal to and if you know exactly who uh, values your work, then you can get some really good feedback. Yeah, totally. And then, so then how did you how did you go from there to Business Insider? Um, I I didn't really have an easy entree into journalism because I, I didn't like didn't major in journalism, um, didn't like really, uh, again, I had a job at Open Secrets, but that's kind of on the, the edge between journalism and, and saying like, ad, ad, not advocacy, but like database work. Right. And so um, I kind of applied, I didn't really apply to too many places. I applied for an internship at Business Insider because I read Business Insider because a lot of what I was doing in math, had I not gone into journalism, would have been in some sort of business sense, because I'm from the New York area and I'd always seen the city and always kind of figured I would end up working there at some point. Right. And so a lot of it was just like, oh, here's this guy that who I really like, who writes in a very cool, clear tone and really knows how to make information meaningful to the reader, even if it's just like how a stock moves and whatnot. And he was Joe Weisenthal and he was running shop at Business Insider. And I was just like, you know what? That's the kind of guy, like that kind of material I find interesting that I can see myself doing at some point. And so they hired me on, uh, I mean, as an intern. And then uh, I worked through the 2012 election for them. And then I came on full time. And, you know, it's it's a, like there's no easy way. Like, And the thing is that on-ramp isn't really available to people anymore because again like business insiders now like an extremely robust news organization and they they're like poaching great journalism and and that's like that you always need to kind of find the place that's growing quickly and wants to find that kind of uh talent that they don't necessarily have but they were i mean i i am enormously fond of bi and i had a really great time there yeah how how big were they at the time Gosh, they must have been probably like 60 to 90 people at most. I mean, you always kind of like try to benchmark where you were when it was starting. And right. I mean, obviously it was like, uh, like I was a young kid out of college. It was the biggest newsroom I'd ever seen. But realistically, it was probably like 60 to 70 people. Right. And then in the office. And then like now I think they're well into the hundreds. And they've like, I mean, I have lots of friends still there and like they have you know, a really robust news organization, but like being there at the moment where they had the opportunity to grow and the willingness to take a chance on younger talent and develop that talent. I mean, the, the, who that is changes time to time. And like BI still does a great job of hiring. Fo- like, I mean, a person who was, I think, just entering William & Mary when I was graduating William & Mary got a job at Business Insider and, and like they're still very much looking there, but it's always interesting to kind of find 
where is the like um the, the like the growth and like the, the who's hiring a lot of younger people who might not necessarily have the most experience on earth right and uh i think bi's always been very good at, at developing that kind of talent right totally and what what were you writing about there yeah, that was fun. Um, so I first started off as the intern for military and defense, which is fine. I have no experience in that field, but it gave me a sense of, you know, how to write in AP style and how to get words printable on the internet. Um, I ended up not getting hired on at the end of that, but they said, hey, w- you could do politics stuff. We've vetted you. You're good. And so I was the politics intern for most of the 2012 election. And then I think it was like right before the actual election day, I got hired on full time. Um, and that's just kind of how I stuck in the door. And then after the 2012 election, the question was, what do we do with um, the, like me? Because I have this data angle, and politics is no longer interesting. Because <laughs> um, the one, the first year after any presidential election is, by definition, the least interesting year. Because you don't have a midterm, you don't have primaries, and you don't have any of that, right? So after that, me and Joe kind of figured out a nice little beat where we would write about like the lottery and, and the actual probability of it. We would write about like kind of interesting like business insiders audience. A lot of them had like, you know, a little bit of know-how and they wanted interesting things to kind of talk about and interesting like kind of um, not just news, but like featuresy kind of stuff. So we would do stuff about like the probabilities of monopoly and, and like how to crush your friends using stats. And, and like the idea is we would like write up cool maps that we surfaced from other fun sources. And, and like we would um, really just try to be a place that like found cool and interesting um, like numbers, stats, quant kind of stuff, and then elevate it and like talk about it. And, and I think that that was a really fun beat. It got me a very good sense of kind of um, how to like what I like it helped you kind of develop a taste for what you were good at and what I wanted to do and all that yeah stuff. it's an interesting beat I mean I feel like that's that's basically what you're what you're doing now would you say is that kind yeah. of like you can draw a straight line from there I think definitely and I think that one thing that I've enjoyed very much about my weird career arc is that like I've done I've had the chance to work in a lot of different places like I worked for a business news site I covered the government portion of it I covered politics at that site I covered kind of general interest stuff at 538 I was covering culture and movies and I was covering television and and so I covered a little bit of sports at 538 uh, when when the opportunity came up and so I very much like um, I'm pretty omnivorous when it comes to what kind of news I like to cover and interesting and I think that that really definitely goes into why I wanted to do a thing like numlock yeah I mean, it feels like to me, I don't know if you'd agree with this description, but it's like numbers just as a lens for everything, right? Yeah. I mean, so the lens portion was always an interesting like question at like 538. Because the idea yeah. is like if you were to ask me two years ago, what is 538? I'm like, well, it's a site that views all of news through the lens of, of data, right? And since then, they've kind of moved, pivoted a little bit. And now they're like, oh, there are sports politics and science site that looks at the data side of that kind of stuff so it's it went from being kind of a lens oriented site to at least under abc it looks like it's looking like a um a content like like a content subject area related site that has the spin on data right but i think very much like with numlock what i want to do is in the eighth paragraph of every story there's a number that essentially a reporter talked to a bunch of sources and one of the sources provided an interesting number that and it's usually in paragraph six seven eight it's down there at some point and what i try to do with numlock is i try to basically move around that story a little bit and so if you go to the number first and then you contextualize it in the sense of the story a lot of times I think you can get a better sense of what's kind of going on. I think when you kind of ask, like, what's the difference between typical journalism and data journalism, it's it's just a mild inversion. Like, in traditional journalism, you'll talk to a group of sources, you'll find data that backs up what they say, and you'll kind of go and publish that story. 
and in data journalism, it's just the other way around that you find interesting data and then you talk to three people who know a lot about the space and you just say, what am I looking at here? And it's essentially a different way of approaching how things are very covered, you know? Right. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that one's better than the other. I think it's really just like, it's like one of the techniques I learned for uh, analyzing stories and like doing your own kind of self-editing is like once you write it, you read it in reverse, um, like bottom to top. That way that when the sentences are kind of inverted, you have a new way of saying, oh, maybe I need to do a little bit more work here. Or like this doesn't really follow from this now that I think about it. And like, I think data journalism is like an instructive way of doing that. Yeah, totally. Like, Totally. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of a more extreme version almost of the inverted pyramid, right? Where you're supposed to put the most important thing at the very top and kind of flesh out the details below that. Well, like in some mm -hmm. ways, the number is the most important thing because it's like in, in some kinds of stories, right? Because it's like the fact. It's like the new thing about yeah. the world that has become newly apparent. Yeah, I like I think uh I was I was doing a similar newsletter when I was at 538 and the thing that I realized when I wanted to start Numlock was like the important number actually isn't always as important as the interesting number. Um, if you look at like an earnings release, like the important number is how much money the company made. Right. But the interesting number is usually down a ways. It's like, here's how the company's changing. Here's where we're seeing new opportunity. Here's the growth thing. Like, even if it's not the biggest business, here's our fastest growing more. And like a lot of times you can learn a lot more about an organization or a nation or, uh, or or a group of people by essentially looking at that smaller number, like oh, this is this kind of pops out a little bit, and then you can talk about the bigger issues and all that. Yeah. I think generally speaking, when you hit people with a whole suite of numbers, their eyes glaze over, and I think that one thing that I really try to do is is uh, talk about cool information in a new way that is conversational and gets it in and like really kind of talks about what's cool about this without really trying to overwhelm people when it comes with too much uh, data. Was there a moment early on, like either at Business Insider or at 538, where you had to learn that story the hard way? Um, yeah, I mean, like, you always look back on the work that you did a year ago and you're like, how the hell did I go with this, this direction? I think right. a lot of it was, like, um, realizing that even if I found something cool – talking about it didn't guarantee that the reader would find it cool yeah. and that that was that was the job and the job is finding something that i'm fascinated by or i'm like it makes me write whoa on a piece of paper and then doing the work of articulating okay here's the context here's what you need to know here's how it affects you personally here's here's uh like here's like a, a, a kind of a, a nice down-to-earth way of talking about it because i think i mean we've all been in meetings where somebody's trying to um like talk about you know progress that that they've made or their group has made and again you'll just have a page with 20 different numbers and the i think the idea is that that doesn't work that's not an effective way to communicate cool information the effective way to communicate cool information is you you really need to contextualize it you need to really like um personalize it you need to you, convey it in a way that isn't like how a teacher or professor talks right the idea is like you need to really get down to earth and connect with folks on it yeah yeah no definitely Definitely. Was there like a time when you had one where you, you realized it went out and it just wasn't, didn't work the way you hoped it would in your head? Yeah, there were a few. I mean, like you always have a few that it's just like, eh, I, I like, you could have done a little bit more work on this. Like there was one story, like the stories that like, like happen or get repackaged. Like one of them was like, I looked up a whole bunch of like, what do boy bands have in common musically? And I was using a lot of data that this group, that the Echo Nest, uh, they're a Spotify subsidiary, like developed when it came to like danceability and 
all sorts of different stuff like like you know tempo bpms and things like that and it was essentially like it was good and it was fascinating material but i just didn't effectively communicate why i thought it was cool and why it was worth talking about this subset of bands and why it's worth revisiting this and 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 because i mean like in retrospect, like the reason that boy bands are, I think are interesting is that they, they are a permanent fixture of the musical soundscape. Right. You can go to any any era in any country and there's a group of uh, attractive like like 20 somethings singing songs deliberately to appeal to um, you know like like young girls. And I think that that's an interesting idea that it's a, a kind of a, a genre that implicitly we keep on returning to right and and like talking about why that's valued and, and like that is like i just didn't have the chops when i was at that point in my career to realize like oh that's the cool story here right and, and instead it's it made it more about like what makes these songs similar than what makes these songs important you know oh interesting yeah yeah, yeah. huh so like what how did, how did the voice sort of of significant digits develop over time so this is the news significant digits by the way i haven't said it yet in the podcast this is the yeah, newsletter yeah, yeah. at five thirty eight. Um, did you, were you the original, like you're the yeah, original? Yeah, yeah, I started that, yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. So you, and you yeah, did that. Great. This is your thing every single day. Um, uh-huh. that kind of weekday. <laughs> yeah. Every single weekday. Um, how did the voice like develop over time? Well, uh, a lot of it came from having been a business insider. I realized that a slightly bloggier and brisk and, and kind of conversational tone was really the only way that you can kind of connect with people. And at the time at 538, we were still trying to find out what we were as a website. And so a lot of that was like, oh, okay, let's play a little bit more conservatively. Let's talk a little bit more about like, like uh, there was a lot of like kind of finding our voice. And one thing that I really wanted was to maintain a very strong voice and if I wasn't able to do that all the time in every article that I got to do, I wanted to be able to do it in some other fashion. And so, uh, so uh, significant it just grew out of kind of a way of like, well, we need a way to cover more topics than we have the manpower to cover. And we needed a, and I really wanted a way to have a, a like a strong voice on the site. And I felt like um, that really kind of, uh, was a very good match. And so I uh, essentially, it took a while to develop. I mean, like I said, if you can compare where somebody is at the beginning and then where they are at the middle of it and then where they are at the end, it's very, very different. But the evolution of that was essentially like I wanted to have a fun and compelling way to get, uh, to, to like reach people who were kind of on the edge when it came to um, data journalism in general, that they were maybe a little bit spooked by numbers. Maybe they didn't love math in high school and have kind of avoided it since, or maybe they were interested in what it meant, but didn't really think it could actually directly apply to them. And so a lot of it was kind of geared towards like broader consumer stories, stories that didn't necessarily get the kind of play among uh, data journalism that a lot of, that, that I thought kind of they should. And, and so um, a lot of the voice kind of came from like, how do I make this as interesting as possible for people who want this in their lives, but also are a little bit skeptical of their ability to to play along, you know? Right. And so when you say skeptical of their ability to play along, like what did, did you have like a picture of, of that kind of reader in your head? Like, how did you, I yeah. remember what you said earlier about with the student newspaper, it was really easy because you knew exactly who your reader was. I imagine here yeah. it was a bit more challenging maybe because it's just so much broader perhaps, or I don't know. Was it harder? Yeah. So, like, the, the, here's kind of the reality of where America stands when it comes to data journalism. Um, every year, uh, countries kind of run a test on their populations to kind of see mathematical literacy and whatnot. And generally speaking, about 20% of America feels very comfortable reading a chart, drawing conclusions from that chart, saying, oh, this number went up. Uh, I can draw this conclusion XYZ from it. And 80% are, are actually not. And, and, like, that's not a thing to, like... 
like that's not their fault. Like that's on the education system. That's on the way that we teach math. That's on that's on the way that we um, kind of talk about numbers in a I think somewhat exclusionary format. I think it has to do a little bit with like when I was in college uh, and we were doing exercises. Those exercises were um, oftentimes using like baseball statistics. And baseball statistics are nice in education because you can see some very distinct correlations that appear organically in the data. But they're I don't think that they do a great job because I think that baseball statistics appeal to the older whiter male or demographic that likes baseball and I don't think that necessarily that's the most effective teaching tool and so I think that when you talk about like who is who are the people who don't necessarily feel super comfortable with numbers you're talking about literally four-fifths of the country and I think that if you're kind of speaking from that like I think the most effective communicators in data journalism are the ones who really don't try to overdo it when it comes to the math. Like I can show, I can do numbers that show you that I am very smart. I can show you numbers that I can do a maximum likelihood estimation and walk through that and all that kind of thing. And I've done that before. And there's a time and there's a place. But I think that people need to realize that they're not going to win the, is data journalism going to be a way that we, widely applicable, they're not going to win that argument unless they're starting to win over the people who don't feel good about math. And that's not their fault. And I think that kind of approaching it from a, here's a fun conversational way to go into it. Here's a low stakes, not talking down to you, talking on your level, like just a very conversational. I try to write, um, five, I try to write numlock and I I tried to write significant digits as if like, you know, you were at a bar and you had a drink and a half and you were explaining a very cool story that you had read about. And like the numbers are bona fide, but like the tone is very much like, here's a cool thing that I heard. Here's a fun conversation at a party. Here's that. And I think that that is like, that's the, that's the only, that's the future. That's how you get the win. Totally. That's how you recruit new people who wouldn't have, have been interested in this field that I really uh, admire so deeply um, without like essentially like turning them off. And so that's kind of the ambition that that's like the big ambition, but like the small ambition is like, you know, I think that there's a really cool market for somebody who wants to wake up every morning, have a cup of coffee, read a fun rundown of the news and have a little dose of, of like, you know, water cooler conversation ready to go at the office. Right. Totally. And to me, like one of the most interesting things about it too, is like, there's definitely math is a part of it, but it's more of like, it's just interesting quantities. And I think yeah, the exactly. concept of a quantity of a thing like being able to define how much there is of a thing, like whether it's some company's profits or some other weird, I don't know, I'm, I'm failing to pull a good example yeah. out of my head right now. But it's like a percentage of Americans. Yeah, exactly. Like, like yeah. you just like understand the world in a way that uh, fundamentally you can't with just language, like like to quantify the amount of something. And that that is a way to understand the world we live in in lots of different realms of, you know, politics or, yeah. or whatever else. That's what I like about it. Yeah, and I mean, like, uh, there, again, there's a. I don't want to get too far into it, but there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to how things are covered these days. And I think that um, having numbers and hard data in stories is a very effective way to specifically identify true facts that are out there and how they anticipate the world. Um, obviously, interpretations are going to be different across the board, but I think that um, being honest about how information was obtained, where it was obtained from, the process by which you obtained it. And again, I think that that's how you are able to make sure that uh, a society is coming at a question from the same like the same base core set of information, you know? Right, totally. So why why was Significant Digits created as an email at 538? It wasn't. It was actually created as a daily post, and I think that we started doing it as an email 
only a few, like a month or so in. Um, that was again, like that wasn't even my call. That was like very much like, oh, this works effectively as a newsletter potentially. And um, kind of as I was going along there, I realized that the newsletter portion of it, like if you're looking at the iceberg, that was significant digits. Like the, the twenty thousand hits a day that it got on the website, that's just the tip of it. The real, the real interest and the real appeal was in in the iceberg underneath, and that's all the people who are reading it every day and the audience that I had built and. Um, the, the the open rate, which was pretty good. And that's kind of what actually pushed me towards, oh, I should build this out as my own thing. Because essentially, like, if people are reading this every day and this has a high readership, and that's very much more implicit and not in the traditional metrics that you would see for a, a page view-oriented site, like, that's worth working on. And so that's why I ended up starting Numlock News and taking the chance on that. And uh, that's why I came to you guys. Yeah, totally. I'm curious. I'm curious though. So it sounds like originally the plan was uh, this is just a cool like recurring feature. This is like a column we can do on our website. People will yeah. find out about it maybe via social media, maybe by directly navigating to our site and like clicking to find it. Yeah. Um. How, and then shortly thereafter, it became a newsletter. Was that like a significant? Like, was that a big business decision, or was it? Was it just like we felt the content was right? Why? Yeah. I'm curious. You know, I don't really know exactly what went into that choice. Uh, I'm very happy that it happened. I yeah. think that we had played around with a few other newsletter forums at that point. Again, uh, you got to keep in mind, I was, uh, I, while I was the chief culture writer at 538, if you look at an organizational chart, that is still the bottom of the totem pole. So a lot of these decisions were happening up north, and I actually didn't even know how many subscribers I had built until like, I specifically asked at a certain point later. Like It wasn't a consistently uh, monitored thing as far as I was kind of concerned as a writer. I was just kind of... Uh, writing a thing into the abyss every day. And then, like, once I kind of had heard, oh, here's the audience that you built, I was like, well, mm, shoot, I should definitely, um, yeah, like, be more aware of that. Like, uh, and so it was, uh, it was kind of like uh, it happened. And I think that uh, it started off as kind of a column thing. And I think that they realized the potential of having it as a newsletter. And then it, since then, though, it was very much like, let's just kind of build this out. Um, it was the relationship that 538 had to its owners at ESPN was very much like, um, monetization was a goal absolutely but uh, they wanted quality yeah. and so i don't think that they necessarily realized uh, or really wanted to um over monetize the newsletter kind of thing yeah. um and i think that like i having seen some of the reactions with uh, when we published ads and i was like yeah you know i mean like the, you would you, it is a choice to incorporate advertising into your life and that's actually a big motivation for why i ended up working with you guys on this because i think that um, I don't know if ads are necessarily the ideal future for media organizations. Yeah. Well, now let's just jump into it. We teased that earlier, but I'm curious, like, did you have specific experiences where you realized, like, yeah, there there is actually something uh, that I don't love about advertising? Like, when did you first, when did you first think that? Yeah. Um, so, listen, I, I, I'm a big fan of monetizing what people write. I think, uh, like, you got to get paid. And the thing is, advertising is, is, a, is a robust and singular model for that. I think that there's a, number, there's a lot of numbers that actually give me pause. I think that the fact that Google and Facebook suck up 80% of advertising dollars spent online is absolutely goddamn terrifying. I think that um, w newspapers really seeded something when they decided to move from the subscription model towards the social media user acquisition model. And I think that what they seeded was literally their audience. I think that you're borrowing an audience when you're using one of these other ad-supported metrics. And I think that advertising is a very fine way of monetizing and, and like making payroll. And I really do respect um, 
that that as a business model. But when I'm thinking about what my ambitions are when it comes to Numlock News, I'm kind of playing a longer game. I think that um, I don't need to alienate a portion of my audience to sell a mattress because that's not like that's not really what my ambition is for this. Like I, I think that I want a um, I'd like it to be subscriber supported, and I think that I'm giving something very, very cool and very, very fair and very, very worth it to folks who do end up subscribing. I think the NPR model is pretty in, 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 like if again, like if five percent of my audience subscribe, then that automatically makes it absolutely worthwhile for me to appeal to the whole audience. And the idea is that I think you're always going to have your most motivated people be the folks who financially support you the most. And I think that that is a um, if you don't, if you don't desperately need to, you know, make the payroll every single week in that kind of sense, then I can. I, I'm a little bit skeptical of hopping in with advertisers. You know, right. um, not that again. I like. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'll probably work for a place that's advertisers supported some time, and I think that that's fine. And I think that that's like a viable way of maintaining a business. But I think for this, for specifically what I'm trying to do with a daily morning uh, connection to a reader, I don't necessarily need um, to bring ads into that you know totally well and the thing you said earlier about like you respect it if someone needs to do it in order to make apparel like also a lot of a lot of publications you know including the new york times are moving increasingly to make the payroll by doing subscriptions rather than focusing as much on advertising a lot of it because of what you said earlier about how google and facebook are just a really great option if you're a business (laughs) in terms of where to spend your money if you're an advertiser i mean they're not the only option they don't do everything but they it's it's where it seems the bulk of the market is going is ads sort of in that uh, in that realm of like really hyper targeted, lots of different versions being tested, super driven by data, um, it's just really really hard to compete with that. Um, yeah. If you're in the business of selling advertising, and I mean like you got to think about do, how much you trust your partners, and the idea is that there, like there's a, a switch in in Menlo Park or wherever Facebook is headquartered that they could flip and they could nuke traffic to a website or a publication. And they could do so by fiat. They could find a way to justify it, but they could effectively do that by fiat. And that, I think, is absolutely terrifying. Um, I think that having, like, the thing that I like about um, the the email newsletter model, and the thing that I also hate it, um, is that nobody controls a majority of inboxes. Um, There's plurality ownership, absolutely, but the idea is that it's a it's a broken down awful system made in the 80s that has not improved even slightly since then but it's so distributed and it's so like no, there's no monopoly there that as long as you have a conduit to reach your audience then that is your conduit to reach your audience um, there's no switch that can be flipped at some like nobody at Outlook 2003's headquarters is going to eliminate me from the earth like and i think that that is a very appealing thing that I feel like at some point, like, I mean, the U.S. mail or, or the delivery boys were never going to annihilate your ability to deliver the New York Times to people. Right. The idea is when you have that, daily, when you have that list of addresses and that, that list of people paying you for it, that's, that's it. That's ballgame. You control your audience. I, I mean, you control access to your audience, I should say. Your audience is obviously opt-in. But um, when you make a deal with uh, one of the other like uh, tech organization or another distribution mechanism, they could they could turn you off or turn you on at their discretion. Totally. And I think that I know that I, I don't mean to sound paranoid, but I also um, I think the people who are a bit paranoid about the power of social media organizations have had their fears somewhat borne out in the past um, 18 months or so. Totally, you know? totally. And I think, you know, if like, let's say Jonah Peretti circa 2013 was here right now, 
he would probably say, because I've heard him in interviews from that era, say something like, well, it's totally in Facebook's incentive to, like, help great content exist on its platform. And so they wouldn't, like, you know, do anything to damage that. Yeah. It's been kind of interesting to see how that played off for Facebook and, like, what their, <laughs> what their incentives yeah. actually are. Because keep in mind that when, like, if, if you're working with what, you're in, think, what you believe Facebook's incentives are, then Facebook incentives change. Uh, sometimes if you're trying to, if you're, like... If your business is predicated on being an incentive for Facebook to prioritize your content, your customer's Facebook. Your customer's not your reader. Right. And, and like at a certain point, I don't want to exist to incentivize a tech company to bless me with page views. And that's fine. And like that, that involves sacrifices. Don't get me wrong. But I think that that's like a, like ideologically, that's a huge reason why I wanted to. Um, invest the time and the money in, in building out Numlock News as an email subscription. Totally. Uh, sorry. Yeah. There's there's another aspect of Numlock that I want to ask you about, which is the difference between doing it independently and uh, doing a newsletter or writing just in general uh, for yeah. a publication. And I'm curious, like, how you think about um, just over time the evolution of where content, just sort of the economic, almost like the value chain, right? Of, of writing because obviously at the two ends there's there's writers and there's readers and there's lots of layers mm-hmm. in the middle and and the way it always was is there was publishers that would you know hire editors and they would have a sales team to go talk to advertisers and they would you know have some deal to, with like I don't know some fulfillment company to like and a printing company to get stuff made mm-hmm. obviously all that's totally changing um, it probably still will change part of the theory of Substack is that more and more great writers will choose to like go independent. Um, and go direct to their readers. I'm curious if you think that that's um, a load of shit or if it's real. <laughs> I'm curious your take yeah. on it. Um, so I think, like, listen, there's absolutely pros and cons to doing this indie. Uh, I, I actually like being edited. Uh, I enjoy, like, having folks punch up my work and I have folks getting pushback on things. And, like, I'm definitely use, like I'm definitely on a tightrope with a little bit less of a... Um, uh, like a safety net underneath by doing this on my own. Uh, my lovely boyfriend, Michael Domenico, has been copy editing and insur- like just doing the kind of the read the, the night before it goes out um, just to make sure that everything's kind of not completely illiterate. But like, I think in general, like, yeah, I mean, like I've probably had a little bit more grammatical goofs than I did in a previous life. Um, and I think that that's just kind of part of the game. I think that one thing that I'm actually looking forward to um, with, you know, like subs stack in particular is like i if this is like you know a consistent revenue stream i may start investing in like a freelance editor to start doing a little bit of work on this kind of thing right. and i think that that's a, a fun opportunity to kind of um continue to kind of spread the wealth and get the and, and improve the product and, and make sure that things are appealing to my core audience right and so in general i think like yeah there's absolutely sacrifices but i mean like when it comes to like i was able to make determinations when it kind of came to the appearance and the content and how I phrased and framed stuff and that kind of thing. And it felt very, very nice building something that I, that I own and that I have the ability to, it's going to be a portable audience. Uh, and as like, as long as I can continue to keep them happy and I'm very confident in my ability to continue to keep my readers happy, um, then there's nothing kind of stopping me from taking jobs that I want rather than jobs that I need, you know? Right. Totally. Totally. And like, I'm curious, do you think that there's something unique about this moment in history that makes it easier for you or for any writer that's kind of in your circumstance or like, how has it changed over time? 
Yeah, um, this moment's good. I mean, like, economy's pretty good. That can't really hurt. The ability for people to kind of strike out on their own right. and build their own thing, I think, is actually, like, a pretty solid moment, what, all things considered, if you look at some of the economic fundamentals. Um, I think that, in general, um, I think publishers, and again, like, I, this is a bet that I'm about to make, and it could not work, and uh, I'm basically just trying to say, here's what I think is going to be the case, is that I think that folks increasingly realize that... Um, having other streams of reaching out to readers and reaching audiences and having a portability there um, is is good. And I think that if I had, um, like again, like left a job and then come to a new job and said, oh, by the way, as part of my pitch, I'm going to start my own newsletter, uh, you just have to deal with that. That would have been a tough sell. But if I'm going to like try to take a job sometime in the fall or something, something more full-time, because health insurance is lovely, right? Uh, um, it, 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 like, this is now a major asset that I can bring to the table. It's something like, hey, in addition to, I mean, this is something I do every day, and that's just something you have to deal with. But like, I have a way to reach readers that I like consistently every day to talk about the work that we're doing together. And I think that that becomes... Um, I think that publishers increasingly realize it's an asset. It's very much like in the first couple years of Twitter, people were mainly just dicking around on Twitter. Now it's a viable way to build an audience. And I think totally. that in a lot of different ways, um, people are kind of wising up to the fact that uh, if you have alternative ways of reaching a consistent readership, um, that's a good thing. Like I was talking to uh, my literary agent and he was like, this is great that you've built this out. And I think that that is like a very viable way of, of, again, you, you, it's a lot of work. You gotta do the work every day, at least in my case, to continue to ensure that you're putting out a product that people enjoy, and that you're putting out a product that uh, that they could potentially want to pay for. But I think that if you're willing to put in that work, um, I think that the, the, the dividends uh, I'm I'm looking forward to them. I, yeah. I think that like I, I've already like again today's day one of rolling out a paid subscription. Subscription. I am very pleased with how that's gone. Um, I think that in general the dividends. This is a long game, and I think that if you're interested in trying to make a long career in media, um, have like I have like uh, I have a pretty solid Twitter following. I have a pretty solid subscriber following. I think the subscriber following is worth way more than the Twitter following just because I know I'm reaching out to a large group of people every single morning and I am in some way bringing them joy. And I think that that's what we signed up for when we got into this uh, somewhat ridiculous business. Right, right, totally. Well, and it's interesting too because like in the book publishing industry, it's been the case for a really long time that you have to bring your own audience. Like they call it, I guess, the author platform, right? It's like if you're if you're doing a book proposal – one of the big things you got to talk about, as far as I understand, is like how how are you going to reach people, and like why do you believe yeah. anyone's anyone's going to buy it? I'm curious, like do you do you see that happening more in like just the journalism world of like you kind of have to in order in order to reach a certain tier of of either like publication or job or whatever, like you have to sort of bring your own audience to some extent. Yeah, I mean it's always that kind of question that's just like like. What's the marginal difference if you have two identical resumes, right? And one person has 200 Twitter followers and the other has 200,000, who you go with for a position might, like, that might be a deciding factor. But I mean, obviously, it's so hard to kind of compare apples to apples in this kind of sense. Again, I just think uh, it's, it's about building assets, it's about building enduring assets, and it's about um, building a way to communicate with an audience. And um, like, Twitter's great, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that, like, like if I look at the click-through rate on a tweet that I had when I wrote a story, it's not my entire Twitter following and not by a damn long shot. Like the highest engagement that you're going to see is maybe 5%, 10% at times. And even then that's ridiculous. Um, I think in general, like the ability to have a daily meaningful connection with a reader is something that was once the gold standard in newspapers. There's a reason that they showed up on your doorstep every morning. Right. 
and that um, went away. Uh, that went away because they, they, the people who um, were working on subscriptions as subscriptions bottomed out were lost power to the people who were rapidly bringing new people to their website through social media. And I think that social media is an extremely viable way of building an audience. But I think that, damn, there's something really special about having a, a, a daily specific connection with a reader. And I think that that's something that uh, I realized was undervalued earlier on in my career. Uh, by a lot of different people at all different stages in this fun little process yeah. of uh, reporting and whatnot. But I think that in general, like, again, you don't deserve an audience. Uh, I don't deserve an audience. I have to earn it every single time. And I think that the best way to earn it and do the work on that is through doing the work. And that's a daily newsletter, you know? <laughs> totally. Totally. So what would, like, if, if there is someone who kind of is thinking about doing a similar thing, maybe maybe they write currently, but they don't necessarily have, like, a big email list. They're not, like, thinking about going independent with their newsletter or charging for their yeah. newsletter. Like, it sounds like, it sounds like the advice is just to write, but is there anything other than that that they can do that, that like, how, how should they think about it? Yeah, I mean, again, like, I, it took years to build a robust audience. And the idea is that, uh, at least with the email list at 538, right? And um, it's going to take years again to, to continue to grow this audience, the one that I've brought already to Substack. Um, but I think that, in general, it's worth doing. Uh, I mean, like, one of the reasons that I signed up to do Significant Digits in the very, very beginning was, yes, I wanted a stronger voice. Yes, I wanted, uh, you know, like, a, a way to write more. But mainly, it was like, I like in when you're a data journalist, let's say that I spend a week on a story. I'm a culture writer, so a lot of the work that goes into writing a data story about culture is getting the data in the first place. There's no right. like uh besides like IMDb, um and that's a very specific kind of database, you're going to have difficulty f there's no pro football reference of movies uh and there's no polling database of of television. And so a lot of the work comes in scraping and getting that. So if, if I were to write a let's say that I it took me a week to write a story. Odds are I spent about two, two and a half days getting the data, uh, two days, one and a half days analyzing the data, and then one day writing it. And then if you look at that, then I'm only spending one out of every five days actually writing. And I think that if you want to get good at something, you have to do it every day. So that's not going to make me a better writer. Um, so I wanted to do Sick Dig in the beginning, and I wanted to continue to do something after I left 538, um, mainly because of the reason that I think that if you want to get good at something, you have to do it every day. And I would like to continue to improve as a writer. And I think the only way to do that is to write every day. Yeah. And so it's it's not always easy. Uh, again, there have been times, there have been countless times where I did not want to write a newsletter, uh, but I still had to. And I think that that's where you kind of grow. Uh, again, like I... Uh, I, I don't work out as much as I should, but a lot of point of working out is that you break the body down and then you build it back up again. Right. And I think that that is a doing that work is what makes it good. Like, I mean, I, uh, I can think of two different occasions, one about three or four years ago where I had to write essentially a very long thing, uh, like over like 20,000 words. Uh, and I can think of a far more recent one back in the spring and the ability to get the goddamn words on the paper was immensely easier this most recent time than it was the first time. Oh. And the reason is because I had written 600 words every single day guaranteed with a bullet, right? Like, and I think that that's what the, that's what the game is at a certain point. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to go on from there, but like, <laughs> yeah. uh, again, I think, I think I've definitely grown as a writer. And I think that a lot of that is due to the fact that, uh, 
I wrote something every day or wrote something with regularity. And so I think that if there's somebody on the fence thinking about what's the value of building out a newsletter, like it's a very daunting thing to start at zero and start to grow from there. And I think that um, that's never easy. And I think that with a newsletter, with a blank page, it's the same thing. At a certain point, you need to just kind of take a deep breath and start it and then um, suck at it for weeks or months and then eventually you will stop sucking at it and then eventually people will catch on and then eventually like I think it's it's, if somebody wants to start a newsletter they should think of it as somebody who starts a diet or starts an exercise regime that the idea is that you are not going to see immediate results you are not going to see results in a month you are not going to see you might not see results in in six months but I think if you think of where you started and where you finished and then you look back you're going to notice that there was a, a, a positive thing going on and it was a change for the better whether it's your audience whether it's your connection with your audience or whether it's your own ability to write. I think that um, people should consider this a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that's good. I think that, I think that's uh, that's a good place to leave it. Cool. So I can be found on numlock.substack.com. Yeah. Uh, it's a daily morning read. Um, subscribers get a number of perks, including guaranteeing that this remains ad free uh, access to commenting and, and, uh, other fun stuff, and also uh, a very exciting uh, weekly Sunday edition uh, that I think people are really going to enjoy. Tell us about the Sunday edition before we go. Yeah, so the idea is that a lot of times when doing this, people always ask me, like, oh, did you have a favorite number last week? And I just kind of shrug sometimes because a lot of them are, like, you know, they're, they're interesting, but sometimes numbers really stick with you. And sometimes, um, I just want to like talk to the people who highlighted those and go a little bit deeper with those. And so the Sunday edition is we're going to highlight a little bit of Viz because uh, again, uh, Numlock Weekday is not a very image-heavy newsletter for a lot of reasons. But I think looking at talking to the people behind these numbers, highlighting the journalists who are incorporating very cool numbers into their work, and uh, really like going a little bit deeper and having a nice Sunday morning conversation with people behind the numbers in the news is, is going to be a really fun uh, way to kind of get your weekend going. Yeah. Well, it sounds lovely. I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm excited in general about Numlock and everything you're working on. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.